to the EcoBusiness Podcast. I'm Jessica Chiam, Founder and Managing Director of EcoBusiness, and we are Asia Pacific's largest sustainability media platform. This week, we're launching an exciting new series on the EB Podcast called Climate Tech in Asia. And today, as my very first guest on this series, we have invited Horace Duke, who has a vision of transforming urban mobility in Asia as our guest. He is the current Chief Executive Officer of Gogoro, an electric scooter company that provides a unique battery swapping ecosystem. Gogoro made its listing debut in New York last month and raised some $335 million at an enterprise value of over $2 billion. Having dominated Taiwan, its home country, in the two-wheeler battery swapping space, Gogoro has now set its sights on expanding in China, India and Southeast Asia, where hundreds of millions of people depend on bikes and scooters for mobility. Are we finally going to see a tipping point for electric scooters? And what implications does it have on the future of mobility in this region? Horace, welcome to the EB podcast and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jessica. It's nice to be here today. Excellent. Um, firstly, huge congratulations on getting Gogoro listed on the NASDAQ. Perhaps we can start off with that. What was that feeling like after founding this company back in 2011? Well, you know, we founded the company back in 2011, as you said, really with an idea that we're going to enable the regions around Asia and mega cities around the world to really adopt EV. The biggest challenge with EV adoption in cities like Jakarta like Ho Chi Minh City or like Taipei or like other many large growing cities around the Asia area is usability and feasibility of such an adoption, right? So thousands and thousands of people living on top of each other in the building, you can't even find a place to park. How are you going to find a place to charge? Well, we all know that EV is inevitable. It is going to happen. And so a little over 10 years ago, we had this idea that how about we just, you know, break the, break the, the paradigm? and shift it toward a, you know, a, a battery swapping model instead of a battery ownership model where you're gonna to have to find places to charge and manage your battery. And so the whole idea has been to, to kind of create a, 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 a both a technology and also a business model breakthrough. And in Taiwan, we've been able to do that and demonstrate that since 2015. And over the last five, six years, we've been able to actually grow the electric vehicle adoption from less than 1% when we entered it, uh, to now uh, well over 10, 11% when you're talking about the entire island of Taiwan. But if you're talking about in the, in the Taipei city alone, in the city proper, we're about a quarter of the market. So one out of every four vehicles sold no longer is, um, no longer is uh, ICE driven or you know, gasoline powered, but now electric powered. Now, perhaps the most impressive is that out of that 25, 26%, we're now talking about 95% market share in, in that electric being battery swapping. So battery swapping is clearly proven to be a game changer. And now with well over, uh, well over six or seven different vehicle makers in Taiwan, all using our platform to create electric vehicle, we're not only the game changer now, but we're really the de facto standard. So, and when you ask, how, how, how does it feel to bring that, you know, that success story? And also at the same time, looking at, you know, growing to other countries to the NASDAQ has been amazing. The reception has been, you know, has been great. We've always thought that it was going to be a challenge to let, you know, the people of the West realize that there are well over half a billion of these two-wheelers rolling around in these cities when most of the people in, you know, in the New York, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco area all look at two-wheelers and says, 
they're recreational, right? And so we always thought that was going to be a uh, that would be a challenge. But the more and more we engage with investors and the the community in you know around the Nasdaq, we start starting to realize that everybody's looking at this entire planet as a blue ball. You know, solving the electric vehicle problem, the pollution problem, congestion problem, the West doesn't mean that we have solved it for the world. For the world, and having this opportunity to not only you know represent the yeast going into to Nasdaq and listing, but also at the same time creating the resources that we need to actually make it make the effective change and the impact that we're going to do in these you know cities that we're growing into has been a, a, a amazing milestone but you know we all look at it you know all 2000 of us at GoGirl look at it as a as really a starting point as a you know as as an enablement for us to actually now have the resource now have the the manpower and the brand recognition and the transparency and the you know governance to be able to create a world class company going to 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 these uh, mega cities around the world. Super fascinating and you know huge congrats again. I mean for an Asian unicorn to list on the Nasdaq and to also be you know I guess a game changing disruptor of that EV battery swapping industry that must have been super difficult. I mean and I know the entrepreneur journey is fraught with challenges. If I could get you to name just one of the biggest challenge that you faced, what was it? Was it regulatory? Was it you know lack of funding or was it technical? I mean we would love to hear your experience. Quite honestly, it was. The lack of traveling, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, we did the entire deal, we did the entire merger with Polima. They've been great to work with. You know, they have a long track record of working with, you know, with companies from all different stages in their in their life cycle. And Princeville Capital, the team from there, created Polima, and Polima has been great to work with. You know, Homer and the and Joaquim and the rest of the team has been great. But the biggest the biggest surprise probably to everybody is we've never met in person. We've met that's everybody amazing. through Zoom. Now that said, you know, we we picked the SPAC route because it really, you know, if, if for those entrepreneurs that are listening, you know, they're you know obviously going going listing. You meet with investors, you know, twenty or thirty minute at a time. You know, you in and out and in and out meetings, and that makes it really difficult to communicate the complexity of the problem that we're trying to solve, but also at the same time the comprehensiveness of our solution. And so 20 minutes, 30 minutes doesn't do it justice. So we end up picking the SPAC route to merge with a SPAC instead of going to the formal, you know, kind of traditional IPO route because we get the chance to do the homework and get the chance to actually have that interaction on a long-term basis, right? To be able to have four to six months of really long-term study and due diligence in the company to understand the nuances in which we're creating. But perhaps like, 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 like Jessica, you know, you and I can have a chemistry on, 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 on camera, but at the same time, you know, when you're talking about, you know, taking a company public, usually having a one-on-one -on -one meeting with a, another person in the room, you actually can see, you know, you, you can see the eye movement, you can see the, the body gesture. Those are the really difficult things that I would say to communicate what we're trying to do. And it took a little bit longer than, than, than we anticipated, but at the same time, we're actually being able to, 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 to effectively uh, create, the, you know, create the entire listing uh, without a single, single minute of travel. And that, that, that was a challenge, but also at the same time, the benefit of it all, because we get to focus on, on bringing up these markets we're talking about. 
what I want to ask you is that there have been a few unicorns that have listed. And then because of the stock market uncertainty and volatility, you know, whether it's pandemic or the Russia-Ukraine war, the tech stocks have been, you know, kind of moving up and down. Um, and a lot of unicorn and spec listing have actually dropped below their listing price. Is this something that concerns you or like what is your take on it? Well, we look at we look at valuation of a company as a reflection of business fundamental. And so, you know, whether or not it is, you know, the, the, the market is doing great and the market is doing, not doing great. I think that the, the difference that we, you know, that makes us a little different than everybody else is that when you're looking at a lot of, a lot of sustainability tech out there today, you know, they're not really, you know, they're not really strong in the business fundamental yet. It's rare to find a company that is, you know, for example, you know, we've been, we've been EBITDA positive since 2019. You know, we were very close to, to break even and, you know, generating profit back in, you know, back in 2019. And the ability for us to build this entire, um, I would say, you know, R&D technology capability inside Taiwan today, and then take it and prototype it and pilot it only to take all that and copy and paste into other much larger markets. So if you think about like, you know, the, the market I just, you know, that you were just mentioning, right? You got China, you got India, you got, you know, perhaps like Indonesia that we're now piloting in, you know, those three markets and those three countries alone add up to be about 64, 65 million units a year in, you know, addressable TAM when it comes to unit vehicles sold. Taiwan, only 700,000. So you're talking about 80, 90 times what we're doing in Taiwan. But at the same time, as I go and turn on these stations and battery swapping stations, for example, in, in China, in, you know, soon, to, soon to come in India, and then already a pilot in, in Jakarta, we've been able to leverage all the resources and all the, all, the, all the technology we developed here in Taiwan to go outbound without actually increasing too many you know, headcounts or too many teams domestically in order to bring that up. So the efficiency you'll see us you know, as a company, the efficiency will continue to improve as we scale. And that is perhaps a lot different than other, maybe, you know, other, other companies out there that are, that are you know, I, I always kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of wonder, right? Some of the companies out there are even pre-technology, right? They're pre-technology, pre-revenue, pre-EPIDA, you know, kind of, kind of pre-partnership. And of course, you know, they're, they're going to be the, the, the strong companies and they're going to be the companies that are, I think like, you know, they're all going to come in and out and up and down with the market. But I think, a, you know, a company like GoGirl has very strong business fundamental. And we're able to demonstrate that through the last several years, even like you said, weathering through the pandemic, where there's a lot of market uncertainty. But all we know is we're doing great and we're continuing to push forward and take out technology and, and bring it to those markets that, we're, that we just mentioned. I think that, you know, being EBITDA positive is something that uh, investors uh, look for. And, and there have been many unicorns that have listed that haven't been able to demonstrate that. And it's a nice segue into your regional expansion, you know, India, China, Southeast Asia. Where, where do you think are going to be some of the roadblocks that you're going to see before you can get over the hump, per se, and to really see the tech being scaled up in these countries? Well, you know, bringing up a market where you're trying to create a solution that's going to kind of kind of retire the old, you know, the old way of doing for, let's say, you know, 50, 60 years, right? Ever since we grew up, we always were told, if you need fuel, you go to a gas station, right? Doesn't matter if you grew up on the East or the West or wherever you grew up, fuel equals gas station, gas station equals mobility. And we were able to, in, in Taiwan, be able to overcome all that 
right? And that's our domestic market. It took six years to do that. When we started in Taipei, there was only 31 stations. By the end of it, this year alone, at the beginning of this year, when we started, we had more locations than gas station in the major cities around Taiwan. By the end of this year, on the island of Taiwan, we'll have more location and stations than gas stations and the entire island, right? We were able to do what the gas station did in 50 years in just five years. However, you know, that took five years, right? From nothing at all to now, you know, having a usability that's so convenient, so prolific, so kind of, you don't have to think about it kind of usability, right? And markets like China, markets like India, markets like, you know, uh, Indonesia, you know, that is going to take time to develop. And so our first step is really to, to pilot in those markets, create the partnerships locally to deploy, but also at the same time, working with these large giants, vehicle makers, to use the, our technology to enable their success in their portfolio. So a great example of that would be, you know, for example, in, in, uh, in China, we're already deploying Hangzhou, in Wuxi and Kunming, working with two large vehicle maker, one of which is the largest, uh, largest electric two-wheeler maker, Yadi, in, in China. Last year, they sold 13.8 million vehicles, way over you know, the amount that we sold. But at the same time, they're seeing battery swapping as not only a safer solution, but a more intimate solution they can have with their customer. Right, because the vehicle at you know is swapping on the network, so we're able to actually have a better relationship with the customer. So that offers a, a, a lot more for them rather than traditional box moving vehicles that charge at home. We also work in China with Da Changjiang, Haoju, which is the largest ICU two wheel maker in China, uh, and together you know we're deploying these stations in Hangzhou, Wuxi, and Kunming. Uh, and also at the same time, you know, working with large vehicle makers like Hero Motor Corp in India, the world's largest ICU tool maker to, to later this year, you know, closer to the end of the year, deploy in India, would only start making some traction in, in I would say, in these hard, you know, really, really, um, I would say, overwhelming market. But when it works, it really works, you know. And so it take it will take time. It will take time for us to 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 deploy and get the adoption. But you know, like I said, we start with thirty one stations in Taiwan, uh, and very quickly scale to two hundred something. Now today, we have well over two thousand location with more than ten thousand cabinets. We just shipped a one millionth battery you know, on the network, all of it was backward and forward compatible. So the user is just super happy on our network. And we're ready to take this, you know, knowledge and this, you know, business know-how and technology into these large markets and scale in those markets. That's super fascinating. On China, I can't help but ask, you know, whether the geopolitical tensions between the countries you think would be, you know, I mean, business often are a victim of some of these tensions. And where, where do you see that going? Well, you know, I think a couple of things. Number one is when we started the company, we never thought about, you know, political tensions or geopolitical situation. I think, you know, the earth has one, we have one planet and everybody's working towards solving that. Now, whether you work on downstream or upstream or the technology side on the product side, I think it, it, everybody's working on the same team. And so the way I look at it is, you know, very similar to what I just told you about how our partnership with those, you know, local partners, they are really using our technology, licensing our, our technology to be able to create their solution. So it's really a teamwork, 
right? And so, you know, when we look at when we look at the uh, all the markets we're going into, we're going to look at partnership driven. And then we are going to be more like, think of us as really the Android of EV. Today, we have, you know, in our network today in Taiwan uh, and also across the world, we have over 10 vehicle makers all using our network. You know, nine plus one, we're being the first one, but, you know, nine plus one, very similar to how Google used to build the Nexus phone, right? And now you got LG, you got HTC, you got Samsung, you got a number of different phone makers, all building on top of the Android platform, but Android in Google demonstrating the first wave of product, we kind of adopted a similar thing. Everybody's going to use battery swapping. We think the battery swapping is going to change, be the game changer. But at the same time, we created a portfolio that demonstrates how to do it, how you can, you know, how, how it is possible. And then later on, bring that technology and enable others to build vehicles that are going to be fitting within their demographic users they want to address, and then creating vehicles in the style and brand and the distribution channel that they're used to and custom to, right? And then so therefore creating a vehicle that then come back to our network and use battery swapping. So that's kind of our business model. And, and I think that overall, you know, because of that, I think we'll see less of the geopolitical you know, impacts that we're going to have uh, because we are really partner driven. Uh, instead of, you know, kind of ourselves going in and taking, taking all the risk by ourselves, I think that what we're trying to do is we're trying to use our business logic, use our technology, use our capability, use our IP to really help our partners transition. So it's kind of like help you, help me, help you, help me, help the planet. And yeah. that's kind of what, we're, what we end up building. That's a really lovely sentiment. You speak so passionately about technology and obviously you've come with decades of experience in that sector. You were formerly the chief innovation officer at HTC and then creative director of Microsoft. You know, how has those, um, I guess, experiences influenced your journey at Gogoro in terms of the technological know-how? Yeah, I've been actually very fortunate. You know, I, I'm kind of a jack of all trade, you know, master of, you know, a little bit here and there, but not, not, a, not of all. So I've been actually being able to, 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 to go everything from product design to technology, to software, to marketing, to, you know, to network creation. And overall, I would say that, you know, the, the little bit of learning along the way added up to this critical moment back when I just turned, you know, I turned 41 when I started this company. I'm, I'm over 50 now because I've been at it for 10 years. But, you know, when I started, it was really a pivotal moment at age 40 to say, well, am I going to spend the rest of the time dreaming about what I can do, you know, for a, you know, for a, for a, a, a large, uh, hold on, earthquake, earthquake, hold on. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, please stay safe. We're on the 12th floor, so it's a big, big shake at the moment. Okay. You, okay. Oh okay. Goodness. All right. Here we go. Wow. <laughs> Right? A lot of people in the, in, the, in the sustainability tech sector will focus on either technology or for product or for manufacturing or for, for us, we're kind of a little bit of everything because what we're trying to do is so comprehensive, right? So if you think about what we do, we try to create, you know, we're creating not only you know, the battery swapping infrastructure, we actually build our own battery. We not only build our own battery, we build a factory and the technology behind the factory to build the battery so we can actually build the infrastructure. Right. Uh, when we started, there was nobody building a motor that was going to be convincing enough 
and you know strong enough and powerful and long lasting enough to you know to overcome the you know the demanding use case of the you know ICE 125cc vehicles that are so popular in cities that you're familiar with that I'm familiar with in yeast that you know everybody you know basically looked at me and said it can't be done and so we ended up hiring, you know, building our own team, building our own factory, building our own technology. And today we're still the largest maker of motors of this class. Nobody else could be able to do it. Uh, we, you know, at the end, we have all, this, all the components, all the technology. And then we said, how about you build the vehicle, right? And everybody says, you can't build a vehicle and sell that. That, that would never work. You know, nobody will ever buy a vehicle that actually does battery swapping. And so we said, okay, if you say no, we'll, we'll build it too. And so we end up building everything along the way. And then we're trying to say, okay, well, you know what, let's, let's try and get somebody else to sell it for us, right? After we build it, we sell it for us. And, you know, to be honest with you, you know, the first guy that we, we, we came up to, he said, yeah, I have my channel, but, you know, to sell it, I take a 45% margin. 45% margin. <laughs> I said, I, I, I'll, I'll do that myself, you know? And so hence... You know, little bit by little bit by little bit, we have a very comprehensive team, a lot of technology that helps us, you know, market and, and, and be able to, you know, kind of connect with our customers at the same time, all the way upstream to actually create the technology and create the product that is needed to build this, this kind of chicken and egg ecosystem that we got. And because of that, I would say, you know, we're very different than other companies out there. And perhaps, you know, other companies sees us, you know, other, other partners see us as, as a, you know, for them, it's a great thing to leverage because we've done it all. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. So they're saying, hey, let's, you know, okay, before we you couldn't convince me to build the vehicle. Now let me convince you to let me use your, your battery swapping technology because we've seen it work. You know, today in Taiwan, we have about half a million subscribers on our network swapping you know hundreds of thousands of times a day you know and literally the whole thing is fully automated consumer just drive you know rides up to one of the station plop the battery in we see how much energy they've used whether or not they have you know they have enough uh, they, whether or not they, they, they pay the bills and if they pay the bills another battery you know within seconds just swaps out and then off they go literally that quick and no charging, no hassle. You don't have to worry about owning the battery and then maintaining the battery. We do all that for you. And on the network side is fully, you know, we built all the cloud and AI server that manages all these stations real time. And so that has been kind of what we've been hard at work on for the last six years. And we're ready to take that and now kind of copy and paste it into these large markets. You know, we brought up Jakarta uh, and now, you know, with GoTo have several hundred vehicles looking to scale that to a couple thousand vehicles very quickly here. Uh, in Jakarta, providing the Gojek guys a, a very convenient usability. But at the same time, it took really no time at all to bring up the network. We didn't fly one single person over from our side. We send, wow. we send the equipment, we send the vehicle, we caught them over video Zoom again, right? <laughs> and how to actually wire it up and how to use it. And like that, off it went. And That's it amazing. And the riders are using the swapping network. And so wow. really, it's a, it, it, we, you know, it's a, it's, all of this is because we've been actually really diligently going through and improving and creating technology that makes up what we're doing fully automated. And that is something that, you know, I would say that this is definitely the decade of electric mobility. Everybody's talking about it, you know, in, by the end of, you know, the great thing is like, for example, in Taiwan, you know, governments are actually putting good 
good uh, strong stakes in the ground. Like for example, in Taiwan, by 20, you know, 2030, by this end of this decade, they're saying 35% of vehicles needs to be electric versus ICE. By 2035, 35%, uh, 70, 70%, right? Another 35%. And then by end of 2040, they are gonna demand that 100% of all vehicles sold needs to be electric, right? And that's a great, you know, great indicator that we're heading toward this direction. Mm-hmm. And it's similar to like you, you, you called it out earlier. Yeah, I started working on, on, on smartphones back in early 2000s. I know I, I sound like, you know, a long time ago, early 2000s. When everybody says smartphone, you know, that was the age of, you know, when Blackberry started, right? You got email already and you got your computer. Why do you need your, you know, the internet in your phone, in, in your phone and in your pocket? And I've always thought computing when it's mobile is going to change people's lives. Just like today, if you come to Taiwan and you stand on the th- side of the street and you just realize when there's, you know, when, when the street has just electric vehicle going by versus a traditional gas vehicle going by, you know, the difference, the difference in the sound, the noise it makes, the difference in the heat it generates, the difference in the smell that you can smell in the air because of the gas and the pollution that you can feel on your skin when you go home. It's just very different. And I, you know, I'm eager to bring what we have done successfully in Taiwan onto, you know, markets like Indonesia, markets like India, where, you know, pollution, I mean, the air is poisonous in, in India, right? We've got to make a change. And, you know, at, at age 40, I need to make a decision. Am I going to go do this thing that I always want to do? Or am I going to actually just continue on as a, as a professional? And so I'm, I'm happy to be here today to say, you know, I picked the non-professional professional route where I'm creating a, a movement, creating, you know, a sustainable business and technology that will take advantage of the fact that we're all now aware of the need of electric mobility, but none of us know how to overcome it. And I hope that GoGoRo will be the one to demonstrate that what we're doing actually makes a huge difference and is the game changer that will change that to, to you know, to, 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 to easy to adopt, you know, mm-hmm. easy usability where, you know, you no longer have to worry about range when you're swapping, right? You know, it, it charging, you're going to worry about the, the how long, you, have, you know, how, how long it takes to go home when you go out, outbound, right? And how long it's going to take to charge. And then also, you know, the worst of all is really, you know, having to buy the battery and buy the vehicle, right? Everything is compromised because the battery costs on the vehicle is about 40% of the vehicle cost. So now you have 40% less to work with when it comes to technology or reliability or safety. But with our equation, we don't include the battery in the vehicle. So the consumer never had to be burdened with it. So instead we use that build the material cost to translate to innovations such as smart connectivity, right? Sensors, safety, you know, precautions, you know, like traction control or like, uh, like, like ABS system on our, on our vehicle. So adding more value to the consumer, but at the same time, providing a usability that will benefit them so that when they use, you know, when they use the vehicle, they can enjoy the, the vehicle for a much longer time. And that's perhaps the, the, the really big breakthrough that we, we made here in the last couple of years. 
That's great to hear, Horace. I think you've said in previous interviews that Gogoro is not just an EV company, that it's an infrastructure company. And I can see how all these pieces are coming together uh, to create the ecosystem. And I think timing is also of the essence, right? Because you've mentioned the decade of electromobility and really with the net zero targets and the focus on climate change and air pollution, really this is And maybe I can just segue this into a broader question around climate tech in Asia, because I think, you know, Asia as a region has typically lagged behind um, the US and Europe. And, you know, in particular, for example, there was a record 17 billion in venture capital that was pumped into the climate tech space. Um, And the climate tech deal size as well has quadrupled even during the pandemic. But in Asia, it attracted not even a tenth of that VC funding that the US attracted, for example. Why do you think that is so? And do you foresee that Asia will be the next giant and there's going to be a lot more capital coming into this region? I think, you know, I think the key word here is the word technology. Are you developing technology or are you actually deploying the technology? You know, of course, with deploying technology, I think that we do see some benefits in Asia, right? Because cost of capital is, is, is less than that of the West. It's easier access to that kind of asset heavy capital that people are used to, accustomed to. But when you're talking about VCs, they're looking for technology development. People that actually from, ground, you know, from, from zero develop brand new technology that can actually create climate change. And I think one of the things that, we, that, that they've been lacking is that development side of it. And that's one of the reasons, you know, I think at the beginning at the top of the hour, you said, you know, Horace, the Taiwanese, uh, Taiwanese, you know, businessman. I'm actually not from Taiwan. I actually grew up in Hong Kong. Uh, I moved to the United States and I grew up in the United States uh, starting my early teens. And when I had to pick a place where I could develop the technology that I foresee to be a hardware and software kind of overlapping each other, to create this new technology, I, there was one natural place. I picked Taiwan because of that. Because in Taiwan, I could develop that technology and, you know, and, and, and kind of develop it along the way. And that's, you know, that's the, that, that perhaps is kind of the new era of this sustainable technology that you were talking about. When you're talking about pure software, yes, the West is better at it. Right. The Silicon Valley's the, you know, the Sand Hill road that, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the California neighborhoods and along with Seattle and Portland, they're great with, you know, in Austin with, with great technologists there, but they're really focused around software. But if you need to take software and combine with hardware, there really isn't many places in, on, on this planet that you can do that, you know, and, and, and that's one of the reasons I, I picked up and, and, and anchor myself in Taiwan because this is where I can actually build it. And, and, and over the last couple of years, not only did we build it a couple of years ago, but I've refined it over time in Taiwan. And that is perhaps a very, um, I would say, a unique situation where we think about holistically, mm. hardware, software, infrastructure, and usability. And then at the same time, having, you know, being able to generate uh, cost-effective capital, you know, in debt and others in order to, 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 to kind of build this pilot that we're talking about, right? And then once we build that pilot, we now got this kind of end-to-end convincing model that we can now show, you know, show, show partners. Because before when we were showing partners, they're like, look at this Excel spreadsheet. Well, everybody can build Excel spreadsheet, right? Theoretically, everything is perfect. But can you really demonstrate that people are happy, that your technology is safe, it's easy to use and adopt. And that, you know, that when you say you're enabling others to build the vehicles, did you do it? And can you do it 
and, and are they happy with it? You know, and I can tell you that working with people like Suzuki Taiwan or, you know, Yamaha out of Japan, you know, it, it, it wasn't easy, but it was necessary to demonstrate how, how flexible and how enabling our technology is so that they can build vehicles that uses our network for, you know, for, for, for the consumer to, to swap and go. And so all in all, I think, you know, we're, we're, when you ask, are the, are the venture capital going to come here? I think depending on what they're coming for, you know, technology development is something that venture capital definitely def, venture capital seeks at. And then if you're talking about technology deployment, maybe that's where growth capital and, 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 and later stage capital comes in. That's super interesting because we actually launched a new fund late last year called the Sustainable Future Fund. Um, and it's a VC fund that's, you know, investing to Series A companies that are sustainability driven. But when we talk to potential LPs, there's always this uncertainty about Asia, you know, regulatory risk or capital risk or technology risk and so on. And it's so interesting that you said you picked Taiwan because of the combination of hardware and software. Do you think then that only the developed cities like Taiwan, Singapore, you know, can kind of host these innovation hubs um, and, and to develop this climate tech, are we going to see more of it coming from the developed cities or is it going to come across like the whole of Asia? I think, you know, I think it's, I'm seeing pockets here and there, mm. right? Pockets here and there. And I think it really takes, you know, for example, for us, you know, getting, you know, people that actually can do machine learning and AI, right? <laughs> to pivot towards sustainability instead of doing marketing and advertising, right? And, you know, convincing developers to go do that wasn't easy. But I think that what, what we are all seeing is that this is the decade for electric mobility and that it is either we, you're going to do it or I'm going to do it or the guy next to us is going to do it. It is going to happen. Mm-hmm. The question is who's going to lead it. And I think the difference, what we picked was we picked a, a, a segment that perhaps the West don't really yet realize the potential mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. When you think about, you know, two wheelers, most people in the West think, you know, recreational, you know, I'm riding my Harley, I'm riding my Ducati out to the mountain, get away from the wife or get away from the, <laughs> from the kids or get away from my husband, whatever the reason it is, they ride the two wheelers and they don't think about commute, right, mm-hmm. or the necessity of it. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, over half a billion two, wheel, two wheelers are around the world. I mean, just to show you and demonstrate how, how, how important this is, over 50% of all commute miles done every day is done on two wheelers around the world, over 50%. Wow. And in some place like India, for example, 80% of all commute miles done every day is on, done on two wheelers. 60% of all gasoline that's spent every year is spent putting in these two wheelers. This is where people take their kids to school, where they go, you know, go to work or they go to school or they go to the market and pick up essential items. This is the mobility tool of choice. You know, maybe not quite a choice, but the only option they have, right? Because you can't find a place to park. You know, it's too chaotic in the city. So four-wheeler is really a luxury item, right? Than a than a than a than an essential utilitarian, you know, vehicle. And so, you know, we picked a sector that we are familiar with, mm-hmm. that we believe that we got a head start because other people didn't. And since then has created quite a technology moat and also business know-how moat around, around this technology because we were so early in, the, in, in, in moving toward the space. You know, when I started back in 2011, nobody was talking about, you know, I mean, nobody was talking about electric two-wheelers 
I mean, I don't think Tesla even announced the Model Model S at the time. It was really the roadster, right? It was a it was a toy car at the time, and you know, nevertheless, talking about battery swapping. I mean, when I first started, people were like, "Battery swapping? What are you talking about? That, that would never work." And then, you know, first set of customer came in and said, "You know, when you go bankrupt, you know, what are you know what? Who owns the battery?" It's kind of like saying, you know, oh you dear, know, it's like kind of going to somebody's you know wedding celebration and say, "Oh, when you guys divorce, who owns the couch?" Right? <laughs> you know, it, it was kind of people just didn't believe it would work. And yeah. but now we are we're seeing people adopting at a rate that is phenomenal, mm-hmm. right? And this is this is where now other markets, as you mentioned, which is a little behind, you know, maybe perhaps where we are today, will quickly catch up, mm-hmm. and then we can't wait to see these guys come up with, you know, kind of business model and their own technology based on battery swapping, mm-hmm. you know, to to be able to make their cities better. You know, one great example of that is, you know, you know, it is still a Taiwan partner. Uh, we worked on a, a smart parking pole that allows us. You know, a lot of times people say, "Oh, you know, when your battery gets old, you know, after ten years, what do you do to recycle them?" And I said, "Recycle? Why would I recycle them? I would reuse them until the very last minute until I need to recycle them, right?" And so what we're doing is now looking into new technology and new usable, you know, usable scenarios and situations where you can use these portable batteries. Mm-hmm. So we made these, you know, made it with our partner these um, smart parking meter pole that has camera, that has connectivity, that has sensors. Mm-hmm. That all you have to do is swap out a battery every 27 days, mm-hmm. and then. Because you're swapping out the batteries, no longer do you actually need to run the wire on the ground. You just literally go up to a city block. As long as you know the city government wants to deploy it, bolt it all down. And we're in the middle of now deploying, you know, well over a thousand of these poles uh, in in a couple of these cities around Taiwan to kind of again to develop the technology, develop the system, develop the know-how. So now all of a sudden, every street can become a smart street. Right, and that is what we're doing to enable cities like Jakarta, like you know Dubai, like like、uh, Mumbai, like Delhi, to be able to now create their own solution and their own smart city infrastructure, and that's something that we're we're excited about. We, we believe we're really a technology platform more than you know we're a product platform or a you know even a network platform. Fundamentally, we believe that portable power. Is going to change cities forever, whether it's mobility or connectivity or sensor. You know, when you have batteries that are portable and that, that can that can swap out, we can do a lot of amazing things with it.、Mm. I'm so glad you touched on that because one of the criticisms of EVs is that it's not recyclable and that you know it takes a lot of、um, energy and, and and resources to build. So the circularity of、uh, the EV charging solution is so important, and to constantly put it back into the cycle is you know something that、yeah. is a priority. And, and that's one reason why we pick two wheelers instead of four wheelers. If you think about four wheelers, the resources it takes to build a four wheel electric car, you know, you're not only building the vehicle. Instead of two wheels, you got to build four.、Mm-hmm. Instead of a, a simple seat, you have to build a front sofa and a back sofa, right? And then you have to add your stereo. You have to add your steel body around it. You have to add your mirrors and glass and all that stuff around it, right? And air conditioner.、Mm-hmm. The amount of carbon footprint it takes to generate an electric car, and you know, by the time you actually charge 
and offset that carbon, you are talking about 30, 40,000 miles into it, or you know, 67,000, 60 or 70,000 kilometers into it. I mean, that's a lot of, lot of usage of that just to kind of break even. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the two-wheeler, is very different, right? You know, yes. I mean, from your part of the world, from my part of the world, we've seen people, a family of, you know, although it's illegal, a family <laughs> of four people, like, surf the, you know, surf the soleil style on a vehicle, right? And with a fraction of the resource it took to b- build that vehicle. That was, sustainability is in the heart of every decision that we make at GoGoRo. You know, everything from suppliers I pick, right? And the footprint they have. And when you come to my factory, you'll see a lot of, you know, kind of collapsible and reusable racks so that when they do deliver the parts to our factory, we are collapsing the rack and then going back out and going into their factory for the next, next churn, right, of, mm-hmm. of, of parts coming in. Mm-hmm. And then how many, you know, how, how, what is our paint, painting process? What is our plating process? What is our environmental proofing process? You know, all of that goes into consideration when we build the vehicle. So we pick the form factor and a choice of vehicle that actually uses a fraction of the, of the footprint to build the vehicle. But also on top of that, we scrutinize every part that comes in. And then afterward, you know, as you see the batteries on the network, you know, a lot of people, you know, battery dies because of, you, of neglect, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. right? Some people overcharge them and keep them cho- topped up all the time. Mm-hmm. Some people actually exhaust the battery and the battery goes kapluk, right? And, and they die. Well, the difference is that we manage a battery during this process the whole time. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you put it out back on our station, we know exactly how fast, how much, when to charge these batteries so that the batteries now are in the best healthy condition. When we first started, we were trying to convince our, our CPA that we could actually depreciate these batteries over a much longer period than they thought it was going to be or what the world thought was two or three years. And we said, no, no, no. That's because average consumers don't know how to manage the battery. And in our particular case, using the, using the, the AI server, the machine learning server, we're able to monitor every battery on the network and condition and charge them in the pattern that's best for them. Right. And so therefore, hence extending the life. And then not only is it after extending life, we scrutinize afterward and say, you know, where you, what are we going to do next? Are we going to go and figure out how to recycle this? And I, I, a couple of us were the first to step up and said, no, we're not going to recycle these. What we're going to do is reuse them and, and try to squeeze out the very last drop of them, not because it makes perfect business sense to do so. Right. Which it does. But it is really, it makes perfect sustainability sense to do so. So the sustainability is about how do you maximize the return that you get through the minerals and through the resources you take from the ground and from the planet, right? And how do you use that to the longest way possible? Absolutely. And then we even, we even, you know, the idea we're brainstorming, it's like, okay, now we've got kind of some of the use case of the second, second life situation figure out. What are we going to do when they, when they cannot be, you know, cannot be powering like, you know, traffic light now or backing up, you know, backing up traffic light or powering the smart pole, you know, and a couple of us raised our hand and said, but they're still good for like, you know, turning a light on to read a book. How about enabling, you know, kids in Africa, kids in, in, in India to be able to have education, mm-hmm. right? To bring these batteries really literally down to the last drop before they go to recycle. And that's something that we're, as a company and a core culture of our company, believe so much in. And then we develop technology around it, right? So, you know, a lot of companies out there today are just really kind of building around greenwashing. You know, I can too, and I can too, and I can too. 
But you know, I think what a couple of us that started this company believe in this so much that we dive so deep into it and figure out not only does it make financial sense, but we need to find something that makes sustainability sense. And so, you know, I mean, our, our, one of our one of our you know investors, uh, you know, former vice president Al Gore, who you know, of course, is a Nobel Prize winner for for uh, for for climate you know climate change issues. You know, he's always said to me, he said, you know, do good do well, have fun doing it. And that's, you know, if you can get the consumer engaged, right? And businesses engaged, if you can build a sustainable business that is around sustainability, then you got a future. But if you can't build, you know, if you can't build a sustainable business and you can't get the consumer excited about it, it's just charity work, right? And so what we're really focused on is engaging the consumer and businesses partners to actually embrace it and create a fundamental business, you know, business architecture that actually is sustainable, that shows a positive, you know, positive, you know, P and L in the, you know, in, in although not day one, but in the future it can show a positive P and L, right? Yeah. That it doesn't have total dependency on, you know, on 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 uh, on on you know on on subsidies and other government, you know, funding, and that what we're building is a business model that can actually scale and has much larger market to scale into, right? And I just mentioned, right? Those countries we're going into is 80, 90 times the size that we are today, mm-hmm. right? And we just look forward to, to what we're going to be building over the next 24 months into those markets. Excellent. Thank you as my ending question and some advice that you will give to climate tech entrepreneurs in Asia, but you've put it and summed it so nicely. I mean, but any, you know, kind of last thoughts on um, any advice you would give to entrepreneurs who are in this journey as well with you and um, what's next for you? Yeah, I think, you know, the number one thing is, you know, don't copycat. Don't take the shortcut. (laughs) You know, just because somebody did it doesn't mean that you should do it. Uh, Somebody paved the way doesn't mean that you should follow as an entrepreneur, you should take a problem and say, how hard is the problem? And the harder the problem, the better it is, the more rewarding it is to solve it and the more necessary it is to solve it. So, you know, I, I always have team member come to me and say, hey, Horace, this is super tough. And I said, I'm sorry, but you know, all the easy ones are taken by other people already. So we only get to pick from the, from the tough ones. And, you know, by solving tough problems, we're going to create a barrier and a moat that is much stronger against other competitors coming in, right? And so when we first started, you know, believe me, when we first started, I was a company that was only 27 desks. I thought I was just going to build the software around battery swapping. And as we quickly discovered after starting the office, we figured, man, nobody's building the battery. We have to build that. Nobody's building the swap station. We're going to build that too. What do you mean nobody's (laughs) building the vehicle? Let's go build that. And kind of that naiveness but also at the same time, the determination to win and determination to be successful enable us to create all these things, all these components that maybe perhaps other people are not willing to invest or take their challenges on. So my advice is the tougher the problem, the better it is to solve. Because at the end, it'll be much more rewarding, either financially or in your heart, knowing that you solved a tough problem. And that is you know, perhaps my, 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 I would say my advice for any, any of the entrepreneurs listening to our, you know, to our podcast today, because what is so difficult to do, you know, the hard way is the better way, because at the end, you can create something that's unique, that is yours, and that can actually make a difference when other people are not willing to do it.
Thank you so much, Horace, on that super inspirational note. I think uh, it's time for us to end this podcast. I've learned so much from you just in that short hour. Thank you so much for being our guest here today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as well. Thanks, Jessica. I look forward to talking again. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, for listening to the EV podcast. For more coverage on these issues, do check out our website, ecobusiness.com, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Our podcast editor today is Benjamin Wong, and I'm Jessica Chiam. Till next time.